Good morning. My name's Aubrey, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a copy of the Bible, if you brought along a Bible with you, please turn to our Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 39. A couple of weeks ago, we met Joseph in chapter 37. We saw that God had chosen him, and he gave him gifts, and these gifts were obvious. They were obvious to everybody around him. And for those of you who've read ahead and you know the end of the story, or maybe, maybe you grew up in church, or um, maybe you went to musicals with amazing jackets, you know that God's favor for Joseph is not just because like, God likes playing favorites. It's because God is up to something, and he's going to use Joseph's to do it, so he gives Joseph these amazing gifts, because through Joseph, he's going to deliver Joseph's entire family from a life-threatening, all-encompassing famine. But it's not just his family that God's going to deliver through Joseph. He's going to also deliver many families. In fact, Joseph is going to become the prime minister and the managerial genius of the world's most prosperous nation in seven years of its greatest prosperity, followed by seven years of life-destroying, utterly catastrophic famine, the nation of Egypt. And so through Joseph, God is going to not only deliver Joseph's family from this catastrophic famine, but he's going to deliver Egypt and surrounding nations. So Joseph is chosen by God in order to be the conduit of God's salvation, saving of all these nations. So a couple of weeks ago, we saw how people reacted to Joseph's, his specialness, his chosenness. We saw that his dad reacted to it. He noticed it. He saw Joseph was really gifted, really talented, really kind of filled with grace. And his father's reaction to it was a nearly lethal favoritism. We saw that his brothers reacted to all of this talent, all of this success, all of this favor with an all-consuming envy and a murderous rage. And this week, we see a couple of more reactions. Notice Potiphar's reaction. Look at Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. There are these slave traders who arrive in Egypt and they've bought Joseph and they sell Joseph to Potiphar. Potiphar does something he's probably done many times before. He goes to the slave market and he buys a slave. And this is a slave probably like many slaves that he's bought that's a slightly older teenager. We know that Joseph is at least 17. We're not sure exactly how old he is. Maybe he's 18, maybe he's 19. He's a teenager. Potiphar buys him. And then in verse 2, sure enough, this gift that Joseph has, this favor of God that keeps kind of like causing trouble for him, it shows up again in his life. Notice what it says in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a very successful man. So he gets promoted. He gets to work inside the house instead of in the fields. That's the point of verse 2. He gets moved from the fields to the house. This is the job of a higher ranking slave. 
And then in verse 3, he gets promoted again. He's in the house. Potiphar now can see him instead of just the mass of slaves out in the fields. Now he's inside. He's closer to Potiphar's sight. He notices that he's gifted. He notices that everything he does is successful. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight, right? You would favor an employee that everything they did was better than you could do and it worked out and your company got much richer, right? So he gave him favor. He, gave, he found favor in his sight and he got promoted, notice what it says, to attend to, pros, to Potiphar. So now he's Potiphar's personal assistant. And then at the very next phrase, the end of verse 3, he gets his third promotion. Now he makes Joseph overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So do you see that Potiphar is reacting pretty much the way Jacob did? You've got all these slaves, all these employees, all these people that you're responsible for. One of them is special. So instead of giving him a special coat that was like a family coat, he gives him a coat of authority and power. He promotes him to run all of his business affairs. And this rapid promotion, this meteoric rise through the ranks, we're told that it occurred because why? Over and over it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Now notice how this impacts Potiphar's business dealings. Verse 5, from the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Now, in order to understand not just what that means on the surface, but what that has to do with the plot line of the Bible, you need to save your place and you need to turn left. And you need to go back to the first page of the Bible. Now, in the beginning of the Bible, on the first page, um, like, like good literature you meet the major characters. And who's the major character we meet on the first page of the Bible? It's this mysterious, infinite, eternal, uncreated being who is enormously powerful. And his power transcends every boundary. He's not God of some particular piece of real estate or some particular sphere or realm. He's not just God of the air or God of the water. When you meet the God that the Bible talks about, he is God of all people in all places in all realms he's God of all the earth and all the heavens and the whole cosmos and he's creator of all and his his power has no limitations it's not bound just by the area of space or time he's control of it all and not only do we meet this major God who's all powerful in the first page of the bible we also see that he's profoundly personal he creates the cosmos not with some abstract act of power, but in a personal way. His voice. It's his voice that creates all things. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. His voice calls out, and it brings the whole of creation into existence. And he loves his creation. He has pleasure in it. He has pleasure in oceans and plants and in a sunrise and a sunset. 
and in the moon and in the birds and fish and animals. And then on the second page of the Bible, in chapter 2, we see that this all-powerful creator God who's capable of experiencing joy and pleasure gives humans free access to himself. He's not like the Greek pantheon of gods that's off somewhere in Mount Olympus that that doesn't really directly invite the humans into a loving relationship. No, this God, the one and only God, is not only all-powerful and highly personal, he is intensely relational. He speaks directly, not just to bring the stars into existence, but he speaks to a human, Adam and Eve. He, he shows the most intimate and personal concern for individual people, for their needs and their lives. He has this deeply personal relationship with all of his power and all of his creativity. He condescends into a personal, intimate relationship of delight and joy with each person. And on top of all of that, he's a gift-giving God. He gives humans an incredible gift. He spends all these days making the world, making the cosmos. Then he makes these humans and he says, here, it's all for you. This is my gift to you. This whole cosmos is yours. And you know what? Out of all of it, you even get the Shenandoah Valley. It's so beautiful. Look what I'm giving you. He puts humans in the world like like a groom building a house in secret for a bride. And then on their wedding day, taking the bride blindfolded to the house, taking off the blindfold and says, here, it's all for you. This is my gift to you. And so we see in the beginning of the Bible that there's this incredibly powerful God who's incredibly personal, intensely relational, and extravagant in his gift giving. And he gives us this world to be the caretakers of it. He entrusted into our care. So in the beginning of the Bible, we meet God, we meet humans, we meet creation. And we see that humans are blessed with this vital relationship with the creator. And they live in God's world in his presence And this world is just the way it's supposed to be on the first two pages of the Bible. It's not just fruit and fig leaves, but it's an entire race of people stretching their intellectual and creative powers to to the limit to build a world that is filled with balance and justice and beauty and joy. Here the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are to learn life at the feet of the Father and build a city in the shadow of the Almighty and create and design and nurture this world into culture, into society, into all that it could be to pull out of it all of its latent potentiality. They're to create civilization without greed and malice and envy, progress without pollution, expansion without extension. Now, extinction. Now, can you imagine that kind of world? A world in which Adam and Eve's ever-expanding family would be provided the guidance they needed to explore without exploiting, to develop the world such that the success of the strong never deprives the weak. Can you imagine such a world? Here, government would be wise and just and kind and resources plentiful and war unnecessary and achievement unlimited and beauty and balance everywhere and in everything. This is the world as it was made to be. The people of God in the place of God dwelling in the presence of God. That's the first two chapters of the Bible. And it's an intoxicating vision that captures our greatest stories and country music. But then... 
But then, as we keep reading the Bible, we can't stay in chapters 1 and 2. We have to turn the page to chapter 3. And that's where the bad music starts and evil shows up. And we're not told where evil comes from. This is a question I get a lot. Why evil? Why bad things? Where does it come from? Nobody knows. The Bible never answers the question. It does not give us the origin of evil. It's a mystery. I, I sometimes think of the words of Cormac McCarthy in one of his novels, no creature can learn that which its heart does not have the shape to hold. And so perhaps we don't have the capacity to know the origin of evil. And maybe one day our hearts will be shaped well enough that we can understand where it comes from. But apparently that day hasn't arrived. What the Bible does give us though Starting in Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11 is a triple play of what evil looks like when it shows up. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the famous story of Adam and Eve, the snake and the forbidden fruit. And this is where we see the evil of human rebellion and we see how it wrecks relationships. Instead of worshiping God as the source of life, humans rebel. They give their allegiance to their own desires, to the non-human creation, and it's very ugly. And then in chapter 6 and 7, we have the second story of evil, the story of Noah and the flood. And now we encounter the evil of rank wickedness and bloodthirsty violence, and it's disgusting, and it's awful to read. And then when we get to chapter 11, we see the evil of human arrogance reaching astonishing heights, literally. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, life as it should be, 3 through 11, life as it is, history and humankind in the grip of evil. And by the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 11, the final six verses of that chapter... History has played itself out. It's done. It's barren. There is nowhere else to go. And there is no foreseeable future. It's hopeless. God has created this beautiful life-giving world. But evil has flushed all the way through it like cancer taking over someone's body. It has darkened it. It has neutered it. It has sterilized creation. And to understand the meaning of Joseph's life when he lives in Potiphar's house, you have to get to his life. You have to get to Genesis 39, understanding the plot line of the story that's been playing out up until then. You see, Joseph in Potiphar's house isn't some independent little story just hanging out on its own out there in the ether, disconnected from everything else. It's a part of the story I've been telling. So the key moment in the story leading up to Joseph is Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's the deal. The Bible tells one story, a single story. It's huge. It's massive. It's hard to wrap your mind around. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is the tiny hinge that the entire story of the Bible turns on. The call of Abraham. It's through Abraham that God is going to refuse for evil to have the final say in our lives and in creation. He's going to conquer evil through Abraham's family. Between Genesis 3 and the call of Abraham, 
the word curse is used five times. In the call of Abraham, the word bless is used five times. God's going to work through Abraham, tit for tat, to take back everything that sin and death and evil and decay has ravaged. And so when we get 27 chapters later in the story, when we get to Genesis chapter 39, and we find this great-grandson of Abraham, Joseph, and we see that God is with him, and through him God is doing what? Blessing. Not just Abraham's family, but even when Joseph gets hauled off to Egypt, the blessing of God is showing up now in Egypt. We know what's going on. God is keeping his promise. Remember, God said to Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 2, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So when you get to Joseph in Potiphar's house and God blesses him and Potiphar blesses Joseph, so Potiphar gets some of God's blessing, you're like, yeah. Like, that's what the promise has been saying all along. Potiphar blesses Joseph, so God blesses Potiphar. Now, did Potiphar understand that? Probably not. But he knew that God was with Joseph. That Joseph was successful way beyond the ordinary. And so he wanted some of that. Genesis 39 verse 3. Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so in verse 5 it says. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Now if you were in Potiphar's place. And you woke up one day and realized you totally lucked out. I mean, you were thinking about purchasing that slave that was bald and freckled and very impressive. (laughs) But you went with number two instead. Can you imagine Potiphar? He's totally, he bought a slave like he'd done many times before, but he lucked out and got the one with Midas' touch. Everything he touches turned to gold. And those of you who own businesses, wouldn't you like to accidentally hire this guy? And those of you who have families, wouldn't you like him to move into your house for just a little while? So that some of that blessing would overflow into your finances and your children and your aging parents and your neighbors? Wouldn't you put Joseph in charge of everything too? If everything he was in charge of just like worked out well? And if you're single, wouldn't it be awesome to have Joseph as a housemate to kick out those guys you're living with in college and move Joseph in so that some of the favor of God would just spill over into your grades and your kitchen and the mold in your bathroom? And students, wouldn't you love to have Joseph for a friend so wise, so helpful, so kind? And just having him as a friend, his goodness and his success will just bleed by osmosis into your life? Here's the deal. It was God in Joseph blessing Potiphar. Because that's who God is. Because he's a gift-giving God. And in this, God is the source of all that's good and true and beautiful. He's, he knows the way the world it was made to be. That's what God is doing through Joseph. And through this one crazy episode early in the Bible, God is trying to help us understand Jesus. The outline of the life of Jesus is being sketched through Joseph's experience with Potiphar in shadow form. God is the author of scripture and like any great writer, the Lord foreshadows. He's foreshadowing. 
at the very beginning of the Bible, what he's ultimately going to do for all of creation through Jesus. Joseph shows us in outline form Jesus. If you think Potiphar was wise to promote Joseph to the center of his house, you're right. Wouldn't you be wise to do the same? If you think Potiphar was wise, follow his example. And what Joseph was in Potiphar's household and business pales in comparison to Jesus. Joseph was a foreshadow, foreshadow of Jesus. Like just a pointer, just an hors d'oeuvre, just an appetite. Can't even capture the whole thing. Did you know there's a star called Deneb and it's 100,000 times brighter than our sun? If it was closer, it would dwarf our sun in the daytime. Jesus outshines Joseph. Like Deneb outshines our sun. You would be wise to promote Jesus to the center of your life. Do with Jesus what Potiphar did with Joseph. Notice the last phrase of verse 4. Put Jesus in charge of all that you have. Because the creator of all things who made something so beautiful as the Shenandoah Valley has not surrendered his good creation to the power and decay of evil. He sent Joseph to Egypt so that Egypt could get a taste of the healing goodness of one greater than Joseph who was going to come several thousand years later. And he does this to give us an account in advance so that when we see Jesus, we know what he's like. The brokenness of our world that's inside of you, the sin. The dysfunction, the sickness, the weakness that is in you. Open the door of your heart to Jesus. Maybe you're like Potiphar at the beginning. You've accidentally got a hold of Jesus. You know, like your parents raised you in church. You didn't ask for him. He just showed up in your life. You can't even remember how he got there. Maybe you were raised in the church. Or maybe some friends started talking to you about him. You didn't even ask them to do that. They tricked you. Maybe you've just found yourself here this morning and it wasn't some grand plan on your part to go out and find the source of all goodness and beauty and truth and blessing. So maybe Jesus is sort of in your life out in the fields. But has he moved into the house? Have you developed a personal relationship with him? Remember in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we saw from the beginning that the God who created all things is personal. And he does want relationship with you. And have you not only brought him into your house, I mean, that was the second promotion, but have you brought him all the way into the center? Have you invited him to the core of your being? Genesis, Revelation, the last book of the Bible, says this. It says in chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man would hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Don't keep Jesus on the margins of your life. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He's asking you to let him into the very core of your being, to be in charge of all that you have. And that can be very scary because who wants to give up control? It's easier to keep Jesus in the field or maybe bring him a little bit closer but still have him within control. You know, Jesus can work for you, a little Jesus when you need him, a little Christianity when it's good. But at the end of the day, 
our will and our own desires and our own goals for our life get the upper hand. But that's not in your best interest. Pharaoh would have been a fool to keep Joseph at arm's length. And you are a fool to keep Jesus at arm's length. And for those of you who understand the dilemma I'm talking about that makes your heart race when you just think about the fact that that's exactly where you've got him, the rest of the story gives us a way forward. Potiphar invited Joseph into the center of his life. He gave him authority over everything, and it was risky, wasn't it? And the risk played out, didn't it? I mean, he gave him total control. He would leave the house and let Joseph be in the house without watching him. It left Potiphar very vulnerable. It put Joseph in a place where he could really hurt Potiphar if he wanted to. I mean, the rest of the chapter is a remarkable story of Joseph having that opportunity. Is he going to hurt Potiphar? Is he going to destroy Potiphar? But he didn't. See, one way I could have preached this chapter um, is here's how to avoid sexual sin. It's a good story for that. We should do that sometime. But I want to instead focus on this other issue. You can trust Jesus. Joseph can trust. Potiphar could trust Jesus. Potiphar could trust Joseph. And he should have. And Joseph never struck him to harm him. And so if you are scared to death to let Jesus into your life because of how scary it is to give him control, because you think, what if he wants something that's bad for you? What if his rules and expectations are somehow denying you? No. He is trustworthy. There are so many reasons to be a Christian. To open the very center of your life to Jesus. There are many reasons to surrender your life to Christ as your Lord. And here in Genesis 39, we see just two of them put on wonderful display. He will bless you and he will not hurt you. At the end of verse 6, it says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was beautiful. Do you know he's the only man in the entire Bible that this is said of? But just in case you want to know, there's only one other person it's set up, his mother. Rachel, they're the only two people in the Bible described as total hotties. <laughs> Joseph was a supermodel. He was the fairest of 10,000. I hope you see that when you look at Jesus. That he is more beautiful than anyone else. That he is the treasure beyond all treasures. He is the pearl of great price. And if you would follow the sightline of all of your desires, like looking down the sightline of a gun, you would see that ultimately they're aimed at Jesus and that he alone can satisfy your desires. He is where you'll get it all. Follow your desires and you'll eventually see Jesus and that ultimately satisfaction only comes by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we heard in our gospel reading. That's what one of the thieves discovered at the very last moment. And the other was a fool. What about you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ,
You are the fairest of them all. And we love you. Help us to love you more. Those of us who are keeping you on the edges, have mercy on us. In Christ's name, amen.